Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets and apostles by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every heaven, every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I trust you've probably heard the expression, the shot heard round the world. You know, that expression, as best I can tell, was originally referring to the opening shot of the Battle of Lexington and Concord and the Revolutionary War. Now, these days, it's applied to all sorts of big things, specifically, it seems, in the sports world, right? So, somebody will make a last-second buzzer-beater shot in a big game, and you'll hear the announcer say, the shot heard around the world, or it will be a, a ninth-inning home run to win the World Series. And again, yes, the shot heard around the world. The idea is literally something happens that's so big and so important that it, it somehow reverberates beyond where it's taking place to the whole world. Well, today with the internet, we do live in a time where things can happen and people literally do hear about it on the other side of the world. I mean, towards the end of 2019, we started hearing about this virus, right, that it somehow made its way out of a lab in, in China. And that news started to spread, so did, so did the virus, so that 
now you think about both the virus but also news about the virus spread even to tribes that would have never heard about some stupid home run, but certainly hears of this. So, so worldwide reverberations. What's amazing, though, as I was pondering these things is that the Bible teaches us that something that we do goes beyond even that. Something we do actually has what we might call cosmic reverberations. In fact, what we're doing right now in this very moment as we're gathered together travels so far beyond what people refer to when they say the shot heard round the world. This would be more like the shot heard round the universe, or perhaps better still, a shot heard all the way into and through the heavenlies. What do I mean? Well, let's dig into our text. Passage was already read for us, Ephesians 3. I invite you to turn there if you're not already there. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 13. So, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And while you're turning there, let me just take a minute to kind of get our heads back into the flow of Ephesians. Going back to chapter 2, verse 11, that section that we've spent the last few sermons on, Paul showed us that God through Christ has created a new humanity. He's taken some Jews and some Gentiles and he's formed them into the new people of God. For those of us not of Jewish descent, even though we were once separated from the Jewish Messiah, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and we were without God, God nevertheless brought us near by the blood of Christ. Remember, according to the Bible, there's two people groups, okay? The Jews and the Gentiles, or the Jews and everyone else. And, and remember… Paul had talked about how there was this this great divide between these two people groups, a a God-created divide. And and, and through Jesus' work on the cross, God broke down that wall of hostility that stood between us. And so now, by faith in Christ, He's created a, a third group where, again, some Jews and some Gentiles who believe in Christ make up a new humanity. And this, this new humanity, the church, becomes actual family members of God. We talked about that last week. And what's more, with the apostles and prophets as our foundation, Christ Jesus as our very cornerstone, we become individual stones that make up the new temple of God. God Himself dwells among us in a unique and profound way. Paul carries this Jew-Gentile teaching on into chapter 3, where in his lead-up to his prayer at the end of the chapter, Paul focuses on three things. Gospel revelation, that is how the gospel came to him. Gospel proclamation, what he's done as soon as he received the gospel. And then gospel reverberations, how the gospel goes forth once it's proclaimed. So, Let me begin by rereading the first six verses here, Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here we focus on gospel revelation. And pivoting off of the end of chapter 2, notice that Paul begins to pray for the Ephesians. That's what's going on in verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And that's the beginning of his prayer. His prayer that he actually won't even launch into until verse 14. It's, it's, as, though he, it's as though he starts to pray, right? But feels the need to pause and elaborate on a few key things before launching into this prayer. And the first point he elaborates on is gospel revelation, how and when he received the gospel. And here I want to point out three things that I think are really important. First, notice the personal nature of this. The gospel was revealed to Paul personally. In verse 2, he speaks of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me he says. That's personal. It was given to me. Uh, Again, in verse 3, he speaks of the mystery that was made known to me by revelation, and that by revelation, he's no doubt thinking about that personal experience he had with Jesus back in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus revealed himself to Paul personally on the road to Damascus. There, Paul was going about his business of hating on and persecuting the church, and on the road to Damascus, with letters in hand from the high priest, with permission to persecute the church, a light flashed down from heaven, and Saul falls to the ground, And he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul. Remember, that's his pre-converted name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you know the story. Through his interaction with the risen Christ, followed by three days of blindness and the ministry of Ananias to Paul, Paul's converted. And here we need to remember all of this would have hit Paul differently than if the same thing would have happened to, say, a first-century Gentile or to any of us. The reason it hit Paul differently is because Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures very well. He would have been intimately familiar with all of God's promises and all of God's covenants. He would have also been very familiar with the content of the early church's teaching, right? After all, He was in the business of persecuting them. He knew what they taught, and he didn't like it. He knew the early church was teaching that this guy Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment the Jews were looking for. And so, when Jesus revealed himself to Paul, all of what would take a new convert today years to pull together as we study the Bible, Paul knew immediately, right? He knew the Scriptures. And once he met the risen Christ, he experienced this monumental shift in how he understood the Scriptures. From that point forward, Jesus was the focal point of what he knew of the Scriptures, right? And so now he could think back on, say, a promise like Genesis 3 and think, ah, 
That's Jesus. Jesus is the one promised who would crush the head of the serpent and begin the process of overturning the curse. He could think about God's promise to Abraham and say, oh yes, it's through Jesus that this promise will go and be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Do you see? This actually leads to the next point I want to highlight, which is the specific content of this revelation. Notice Paul uses the word mystery. This is clearly important to him, so important that he uses this word four times in this short section. In in point of fact, this is a very important word when you think of biblical theology, when you think of putting our whole Bible together. This idea of mystery is important. And when you see mystery in the Bible… Don't think of mystery like a a mystery novel or a mystery movie or mystery theater or something like that, right? That's not it. It's not a mystery to be solved. In the Bible, the mystery is tied up in God's redemptive plan that's once concealed but now revealed, okay? So when we studied the book of Daniel together, some of you might remember that this word mystery was very prominent in chapter 2. There, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that was indeed opening up God's plan of redemption for the end of the ages. There were four major kingdoms that were said that would rise up, and in the middle of the fourth, the Roman Empire, God reveals that the Messiah is going to come in at at this particular time, and He's going to bring about His kingdom that would ultimately crush all other kingdoms. That was a major revelation. That was something that had been concealed, known only to God, and yet now revealed in the Scripture. And also, too, in Paul's usage, right, the mystery that he speaks of is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. The mystery is tied to God's plan once concealed, known only to God, and now revealed. And you see that here, the way Paul describes this, saying that it was not known in previous generations, but it has now been revealed to the apostles and the New Testament prophets. And verse 6 is very helpful. Paul gets very specific about the content of this redemptive historical mystery. And in so doing, for those of us who have been studying this book, he's he's tying some things together. He says that the Gentiles, this this is the mystery, this wasn't known in previous generations, the Gentiles become fellow heirs. And Paul's been teaching us that in this book so far, right? Earlier, saying that Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but are in fact part of God's household, part of God's own family. In fact, you go back to chapter 1, and he says that we've been predestined to adoption, and as adopted sons, we've got this glorious inheritance waiting. So we're heirs with the Jews, those who believe. Here he also says that we're now members of the very same body, And again, you can look back to chapter 2, where that dividing wall of hostility is torn down by Christ, and the two people, Jews and Gentiles, become one new man, one new humanity. What's more, Gentiles become partakers of the promises of God. We talked about this last week. The promises of God that were once thought to be just for the Jews are ours. In Christ Jesus, he says, through the gospel… And you know, it's those last two phrases, in Christ, through the gospel, that really is the nub of the mystery, right? Those familiar with the Old Testament understood the promises of God. 
They understood in broad strokes how all of this was moving forward. And while there were some prophecies in the Old Testament about a coming Messiah, a coming future eternal Davidic king, a servant of the Lord, it did not become clear who that would be until Jesus came on the scene and lived the perfect life and went to the cross and bore the punishment that we were to bear and was raised victoriously from the dead. See, we have the New Testament. We have 2,000 years of church history. So, you know, for us, it's like, oh, it doesn't seem like that much of a mystery. But for the early church, this was earth-shattering. Read Acts chapter 15, and you get a feel for the struggle that they have. How do we understand the gospel going forth to these Gentiles, right? These two people groups, listen, could not have been any further apart. And they're coming together into one new man through the death of Jesus had been concealed, but now revealed to Paul and the other apostles. And I want to point out one more thing about gospel revelation before we go into the second major point on the outline, and I'm going to be quick here because this actually leads right into the second major point. Here I want us to see that gospel revelation is not only for the good of the one who receives it, but also for the good of others. I already pointed out how Paul says that the mystery was revealed to him, but if you go back to verse 2, you'll see that I left off two important words when I read that a moment ago. There he says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And this is very important. The gospel was not revealed to Paul or us, for that matter, to keep to ourselves. Gospel revelation isn't ultimately and finally about studying theology very deeply. It's not about having all the right doctrine or even pontificating about these glorious doctrines to one another. Though all that's important, you will never hear me downplay the importance of knowing good theology. But the gospel is revealed so that it can likewise be proclaimed. If we just know it and don't proclaim it, well, that's, that's a problem. Look at the next point seen in verses 7 through 9. He says, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. As we think about how God would build His church, how God would build up His new temple, we know that the gospel was revealed so that it could be proclaimed. I mean, doesn't the risen Jesus say that? It's got to be important to Him. On His way back to the Father, right before His ascension, He tells us, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Paul clearly bought into this, didn't he? Reception of the gospel 
led Paul directly to gospel ministry. And while Paul is indeed an apostle, so there are some aspects of his ministry that do not apply directly to us, this text, coupled with the rest of the New Testament, helps us to see that gospel ministry is something that every single Christian is to engage in. And notice that Paul refers to this as a gift. He says, of this I was made a minister according to the gift of His grace. This is a grace gift. I mean, when we think about a grace gift, biblically speaking, our minds would immediately go to salvation, right? Which is surely correct. Salvation is an amazing gift, a gift of grace. Paul told us that in Ephesians 2. But here, don't miss that he says that gospel ministry, taking part in gospel ministry, is likewise a grace gift. And I'm not sure we always think about it as such. I think we often think about gospel ministry as work or a duty, but not necessarily a gift. But, but that is precisely what Paul calls it. Gospel ministry, he says, is a gift of God's grace. And I think we should ponder at least for a minute why he would say that. Why would Paul call gospel ministry a gift? I mean, did you notice in verse 1, he's already said he's a prisoner. That imprisonment is a direct result of his ministry. But what's more, at the end of this section, verse 13, he's going to talk about the fact that he's suffering. That's also a direct result of this ministry. So, so why is that a gift? Well, maybe we might think about it like this. Sometimes you hear people counseling a high school student or college student who, who's wrestling with, what am I supposed to do the rest of my life, right? What am I, what am I supposed to do when I grow up? And, and sometimes you'll hear uh, an, an older gentleman or an older woman say, you know what? Find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And the reason they say that is there's joy in finding a job you love, right? There's joy in having a job that's actually fulfilling. There's joy in finding a job that you think is in line with how God has hardwired you so that you are doing what you were put on planet earth to do. And thus, when we Christians think about gospel ministry, and by that I'm not talking about vocational ministry, I'm talking about that which all of us are called to do, engaging in gospel proclamation, engaging in gospel discipleship, playing our part in the Great Commission. This is immensely satisfying. It is a great joy because it is a gift to get to do what God has put us on this planet to do. What's more, as we engage in gospel ministry, we get to see the very power of God working within us. You see this in the second part of verse 7, and, and this is far from the only time you see Paul talking like this. In, in, in Colossians 1, 28 through 29, for example, Paul says, Him we proclaim, that's Christ we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that powerfully works within me. Or in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul asks God to remove this thorn in the flesh, and a lot of times wasted. Well, what's a thorn in the flesh? We don't know, but it was hard. And Paul asks God, he pleads with God, God, remove that, would you? And God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, all right then, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest in me. Well, here Paul's interacting on these very ideas. In Ephesians 3, he uses two words, working and power, to speak of God's empowering hand upon his life and ministry. And church, this is here for us as well. I like how Clinton Arnold put it in his commentary commenting on this. He says, quote, Paul's example serves as an inspirational model and an instructive pattern to his readers. The grace and power of God they have experienced in their call to be his children and engage in a life of service will also be sufficient for them as it was for Paul, end quote. What's more, in and through God's grace and His divine enabling, Christians have the joy of proclaiming what Paul calls the unsearchable riches. We'll never get tired of this. You can't plumb the depths of it. We get to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to anyone, everyone. Think about it. Paul has already told us that at one time, Gentiles were as far off as you could possibly be from God, right? They had the common experience with lost Jews of being dead in their sin and slaves to the world, the devil, and the flesh. But as Gentiles, they're even further away as they're separated from the Jewish Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope because they were without God. But now, through Christ, any anyone who might believe can be brought near. That means, church, we proclaim the gospel to all. This passage should lead us to trust, whoa, if God can save Gentiles, then there's no one He can't save. Listen close. It is not our job to decide to try to discern who's quote-unquote ripe for the pickings. It is not our job to try to discern who or who isn't of the elect. Our job is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to anyone and everyone. I love how the Canons of Dort, a document produced by the Reformed Synod of Dort, speaks of evangelism. You sometimes hear, oh, reformed people, they don't care about evangelism. Oh, no. Listen to this. This is glorious. Moreover, the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously and without distinction, to whom God, out of His good pleasure, sends the gospel. That's a good use of the word promiscuous. We often use it with a real negative connotation, but I like that when it comes to sharing the gospel. We want to get out there amongst anyone and everyone, cast seed of the gospel as far and wide as we possibly can. And when we do this, when the church acts like the church, as we minister the gospel to one another, and to a lost and dying world, Paul shows us how the gospel reverberates beyond our own world, even into the heavenly places. Look at verses 10 through 13. 
back it up. He's just talked about being a minister of the gospel, right? Bringing, verse 9, to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Here we see three very important gospel reverberations. First, get your head around this. This is amazing. Satanic forces are reminded of their defeat. Here I want you to notice, verse 10 starts with a purpose statement. The point is the gospel's proclaimed so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might right now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And let me just point out elsewhere in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, we see that these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are referring to Satan and his hordes. In Ephesians 6, 12, we read, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And no doubt that same idea is what's at play here in chapter 3. So think about this. Gospel ministry occurs so that, for, for the purpose, and I would say for the purpose with a guaranteed result, that through the church, the, the manifold wisdom of God, the variegated wisdom of God, that is the amazing wisdom of God's mystery put differently, that is the glorious, stunning plan of redemption, that reverberates not only through our planet, as people from every tribe, nation, and tongue by God's grace, begin coming to Christ. But it also reverberates throughout the heavenly places so that it's made known even to evil rulers and authorities. Now, listen, that does not mean that one of our roles is to go about preaching to evil power. Sometimes this passage is twisted to mean something really strange, like you're supposed to go shout down the demons and cast them out and all this crazy stuff. That's not the point of that text point's actually far more glorious. The point is that as the church is all about the mission of Christ, this is already happening. That means every time we gather and the Word of God is preached, that means if we go on a missions trip together as a church for the spread of the gospel, that means when we gather and pray together like the early church for boldness, that means when we evangelize, when we are about the work of gospel ministry, Satan and his minions are being reminded of God's stunning plan to reconcile a fallen world back to himself. I love how P.T. O'Brien puts it. He says, the very existence of the church is a reminder that the authority of powers has been decisively broken and that their final defeat is imminent, end quote. Our ministry reminds Satan and his minions that their authority has been broken and the gates of hell will never prevail ultimately and finally against Christ and his church. Little wonder then that for now, the church must be girded in the whole armor of God. So Ephesians 6, because Satan and his minions hate this. 
That's why there's a spiritual battle, right? We proclaim the gospel. When you're faithful to proclaim the gospel, he's being reminded that God's at work. He doesn't like that. And Revelation 12 tells us he knows his time is short, and so his aim is to seek to do as much harm as he possibly can. But as Christians, there's another glorious gospel reverberation that, 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 that helps us here, right? Yeah, there's going to be a spiritual battle, but there's also a deep and profound assurance for all who are truly in Christ. Life may be hard. Gospel ministry will be challenging. But you see in verse 12, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Christ. Remember in chapter 2, verse 18, Paul said that through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, both have access to the Father in one spirit. And here Paul's going after that same reality, but now he's using language designed to promote assurance for the people of God. He says, now we have boldness to come into his presence, right? I don't have to tiptoe or be fearful because of Christ. I have boldness. We have access with great confidence because of faith in Christ. Now, demonic forces will still try to tempt us. You'll hear whispers. You're just a sinner. You've blown it too much. You're undeserving. You know what? You should just give up. But those accusations no longer stand before God because Christ is our advocate and he has neutered Satan's power of accusation before God. Now, that doesn't mean our lives will be easy. They won't. They won't. There will be challenges, spiritual warfare, trials. But in the midst of the trials, we can have all the confidence in the world that we are Christ's. And we will one day stand before God clothed completely in Christ's righteousness. And this is important because the last thing we see in this text, at least implicitly, is that Christians will indeed suffer. Here Paul, who's already set up in verse 1 that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, where he said on behalf of his ministry, so he's in prison because of gospel ministry, and here he says, don't lose heart for what I'm suffering for you. It's for your glory. Now, the faithful Christian can and should then only assume that as Christ, our captain, suffered, as Paul suffered, as all of the apostles suffered, why should we expect anything different? And Paul even tells us in Acts 14 that it's through many tribulations, many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. Christians are never promised an easy path, but we are promised that God is on our side, that we're adopted children, and that we have a glorious inheritance waiting. And I want to end just by quickly sort of tying together what we've been looking at as we think about some application, because I, I do think we see a pattern in this text. I think we see a pattern that's here for all of us, that is, gospel revelation that leads to gospel proclamation that leads to gospel reverberation. Earlier we saw that the gospel was revealed very personally to Paul, and in fact, the gospel is revealed very personally to everyone who comes to faith in Jesus. 
Now, Paul's experience was very unique in the history of the church. That's why he's an apostle, right? Jesus doesn't come to us and talk to us on, on, a, on a road like he does, he does Paul. But don't for a minute think that it's not personal. For all who come to know Christ, the gospel is personally revealed to us as someone somewhere along the way proclaimed that gospel. Who knows, for some, that might be right now. As I stand before you as an instrument of God to preach the gospel of Christ, you might be here this morning and you've never heard of Jesus, or more likely, you've heard of Christ. You have a basic understanding of the gospel, but you've never come to that point where you have repented of your sins and trusted completely in Jesus. And if that's true of you this morning, I'd like to ask you to consider what the Bible says about God, man, Christ, and our response. See, the Bible teaches us that God is holy. He is perfect. He is completely different than us. And He created us. He created us with a purpose. He created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But because of our sin, in effect, we said, no thanks. I'm all set. I'm going to live however I want. The Bible calls that sin, right? Any, any rebellion, any slight, great, tiny, huge, whatever, rebellion against God is called sin. And that sin separates us from God. Our sin, think about it, has us separated from our very maker, separated from our highest good. In fact, our sin has us on a path of eternally being separated from God in judgment in a place called hell. But you don't have to stay on that path because God in His grace sent Jesus come and live the perfect life we couldn't live. And He went to the cross, and He bore the punishment we deserved to bear. And if you'll repent of your sin and trust in Christ, even today, you can have your sins forgiven, all of them, past, present, and future. Be saved. Be made right with God. Have fellowship with God restored. So I'd plead with you, if, if that's you, look to Christ even now. Well, as we think about the gospel being revealed, because it all comes, all of us, it hits us in one way or the other, but at one point in time, there was that gospel revelation that for the believers now, we've come to accept, right? And if we follow the biblical pattern, that should then lead to gospel proclamation. But I do want to again point out that that gospel proclamation here in this chapter is through the church. There's no Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. And so for one who comes to faith, one who receives this gospel revelation, we need to join a church, be all in at a church, and do ministry with the church. Be all about that ministry of proclaiming the gospel. Oh, to be sure, there's an individual side to it. All of us need to be interacting with people. You know people I don't know, and I know people you don't know. But there's also a corporate aspect to it, and so we lock arms together and we do that. And as we do, as we do, the gospel reverberates to all the nations. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? We support Bill and Kelly Housley in Papua New Guinea. We are doing gospel ministry in Papua New Guinea. That's pretty awesome, right? Through us, in a small way, the gospel is reverberating to the ends of the earth. It also is reverberating right now as I'm preaching and I'm humbled and, and, and I don't even know the word, but I'm, I'm 
just amazed by the reality that the gospel is reverberating even before Satan and his hordes, letting them know the gates of hell are not going to prevail against Jesus, against His church. And as a result, church, we do need to be clear that we are in a battle. I think so often in American Christianity, we, we have so much health and wealth, prosperity, baggage, that we think, oh, I've, I've, I've nailed it down with Jesus. Life should be easy. Marriage should be a piece of cake. Raising kids, no problem. Interacting with neighbors, work. And, and, and then we're just like, what's going on? Why is my life hard? Why is this so stinking challenging? Well, last time I checked, it's because Satan hates what we're doing. And if he can take us out, then he has to listen to that even less. So, we ought to be faithful here. We want to work together, come alongside of one another, knowing that as the gospel reverberates in and through the heavenly places, there's a battle, there's challenges, and we ask God for the grace to hold fast for Him and to keep going one step at a time. If we can't walk, we crawl. If we see a brother crawling, we help pick him up, but we walk this journey together for His glory, for His glory, knowing all of this is in fact coming to an ultimate fulfillment when we get to be with Him forever and ever. All of our trials finally at that point gone. Let's pray. Father, we say thank You. Thank You for saving sinners like us. And we say, help us, Lord, as we live life in a fallen world. Lord, we feel the pains and the hurts of a fallen world, it seems like, every single day. And Lord, we pray that You would help us and empower us to be faithful as we're about to sing. Help us now to live a life that's worthy of the gospel for Your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.